World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. On International Women's Day, our correspondent crunches through piles of survey data to get a look at how women are doing in America's labor force. The numbers aren't encouraging. And after a scathing television interview, we take a look at Britain's royal rift. What were Harry and Meghan hoping to accomplish? And what damage might it have done to the royal family and to their prospects on the other side of the pond? But first... Brazil has just gone through its deadliest week of the pandemic. Daily fatalities hit a record level of more than 1,900 on Thursday, bringing the total number of deaths to more than 265,000 and cases to more than 11 million. The discovery of a contagious new coronavirus variant in the Amazon region has fueled the brutal second wave. But the government's response has been slow and patchy and has failed to contain the spread. The sense that you get living here is sad and almost fatalistic. It feels like this country has given up on dealing with this pandemic in a responsible, life-saving way many months ago. Sarah Maslin is our Brazil correspondent. Even though we are all seeing that the cases are higher than they've ever been, the hospitals are full in nearly every part of the country, the restrictions that have been introduced feel completely out of tune with that reality. They've been late, they've been minimal, and some cities are slightly stricter than others. But I think the feeling that most Brazilians have is that COVID is just going to happen and overtake this country like a tidal wave, and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. And the concern right now is that the, the health system is buckling under the weight. Right. So the difference between this second wave compared to the first wave is that For the first several months of the pandemic, the virus was sort of ping-ponging between different Brazilian states, whereas now most of the country's 26 states are seeing their hospitals at or near capacity, and there's really a limited ability to sort of transfer patients or doctors or supplies between the different states. Recently, the health secretary of the Amazonian state of Hondonia mentioned this desperation in a video aimed at those who weren't taking the coronavirus seriously. Esse recado é para você. Nós não temos leito de UTI para sua mãe. Não tem leito de UTI para o seu pai, para sua tia, para He says, we have no ICU beds for your mother, for your father, for your aunt. It doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, young, old. We simply have no ICU beds available. And those rises in numbers, those strains that are coming about, is that down to new variants of the virus? Is that the big problem here? That's definitely part of the story. They found this new variant in the Amazonian city of Manaus late last year. 
It's called P1, and recent studies show that it's 1.4 to 2.2 times more contagious than other versions of the virus. And the really scary thing is that it looks like it is much more capable of reinfecting people who have already been infected. That might be why people in Manaus were hit really badly by a second wave, even though some studies suggested that as many as three quarters of the population had been infected in the first wave. The other thing that seems really scary is that it looks like this current wave is affecting young people at much higher numbers than before. So this variant is clearly causing some of the trouble, but you also say that there's a, a certain sense of fatalism that's contributing here. I mean, how much does that have to do with the leadership? We've talked a lot before about how President Bolsonaro likes to sort of brush off the pandemic. Bolsonaro hasn't changed a bit. At a recent event, he told Brazilians to stop whining about the coronavirus. Chega de frescura, de mimimi. Vão ficar chorando até quando? And said, you know, how long are you going to keep crying about it? But it's not just him. The first wave, you saw politicians trying to take a different stance and even going to the Supreme Court to fight for their right to shut things down, even though the president disagreed. This time, it's different. Brazil has been seeing cases creep up for months now, and it's only in the past few weeks that mayors and governors have really started implementing serious restrictions closing businesses full-time rather than just, say, from 11 p.m. to 5 a.m., which is what we had in Sao Paulo for a few weeks. And what do the Brazilian people think about the, the patchy measures that have been put into place? I think there's a real split. You definitely see the outrage that Brazilians, especially the more educated and richer Brazilians, have had from the beginning. But there's also a real feeling among the middle class and the working class that putting in more restrictions is going to do more harm than good because the economic situation is so bad. Unemployment has barely come down from its record high of around 14%. And the emergency cash payments the federal government paid to people for nine months last year have now been cut off. So millions of people were basically plunged into poverty when the clock struck midnight on December 31st. Congress is trying to push past a smaller version of the cash payments, but it's going to take some time. But certainly one path out of all of these kinds of trade-offs is vaccination. How is the country's program of, of inoculation going? It's had a frustratingly slow start. Brazil has administered vaccines to only about 3% of its population That's way behind neighboring countries like Chile. Here in Brazil, most of the problem is that Bolsonaro is anti-vaccines. And many months ago, when he had offers from different vaccine companies, including some that were doing trials here in Brazil, he kicked the can down the road and signed with AstraZeneca. But that one provider hasn't been enough now. Here in Sao Paulo, the governor signed a deal with the Sinovac company to produce its Coronavac vaccine, and the federal government sort of found itself forced to make a deal as well. But there have also been all sorts of supply bottlenecks and problems with distribution and a real kind of ineffectiveness on the part of the National Health Ministry, which is overseeing this whole effort. It sounds like a fairly bleak picture all around, but it's not just a problem for Brazil if, if these new variants in particular are allowed to run rampant. 
That's true, and it's really scary. The longer the disease is left to fester in, in countries like Brazil, the greater chance that new variants will start to emerge that reduce the effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines elsewhere in the world, posing a threat to nations that have already immunized their populations. In a lot of these countries that are still really struggling with the virus, you see their leaders just begging for the rest of the world to send them vaccines so that they can vaccinate people as quick as possible. So far, we haven't seen that from Bolsonaro. He's been really against vaccines. But just in the past few weeks, it looks like maybe he's starting to change his tune. He signed a deal with Pfizer and he suggested in a recent interview that he himself might get vaccinated. So I guess the hope is really that Bolsonaro will understand that vaccinating people is essential to the economic recovery that he's been prioritizing from the start. And that that combined with attention from the rest of the world in getting vaccines to Brazil will start to allow Brazil to get a handle on something that feels right now like it's totally out of control. Thanks very much for your time, Sarah. Thank you, Jason. For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. In America, jobs numbers released on Friday showed a bit of good news even as the pandemic continued across the world. Employers added 379,000 jobs last month. Nearly 170,000 more than what was expected. There are still 9.5 million fewer jobs than there were this time last year. That's better than it was during the worst of the pandemic, but there's still a long way to go, for some more than others. Friday's jobs report showed that the U.S. employment picture is improving. Samaya Keynes is our trade and globalization editor. But for some demographics, the, the picture does remain pretty grim. If you look at the rate at which, say, women over 20 are participating in the labor force, so that, that means in work or looking for a job, that's fallen by 2.4 percentage points over the past year. That's a big drop. And that's 0.5 percentage points more than for men. So why is it that, that women were so badly hit? Well, that is obviously not a straightforward question to answer. But to try, I have been digging into the data. I've been looking at the current population survey, which is a monthly survey of Americans. And and doing that, I have seen that the drops in participation are much bigger among mothers of young children. Fathers of children just don't see as big a drop. It does seem to be concentrated in, in these mothers. And did that surprise you, or is that what you might have expected? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, childcare has very much not returned back to a pre-pandemic normal level. 
There was a survey of mothers using formal childcare arrangements pre-pandemic from the Bipartisan Policy Center, which is a think tank. And they found that as of December, two-fifths of the survey respondents said that their old childcare arrangements were just not available right now. There are others who've done slightly more sophisticated things than me. There's Ernie Tedeschi at Evercourt ISI, which is a consultancy. He compared changes in participation with the timing of school closures. And by doing that, he estimated that those closures were associated with a drop in mothers' labor force participation that was equivalent to 1.6 million people. That's a big number. So in those analyses, then childcare uh, expectations, the, the changing provision of childcare explains these big gaps, do you think? I think it explains a big part of it. But there are other factors at play. When the pandemic first hit, a lot of people expected women to be hit harder because of which industries they tend to work in. There's this idea that women tend to work more in services industries, And so that could contribute to their greater job losses. Again, when I dug into the data, I was actually a bit surprised. I found that the distribution of industries that women worked in only accounted for about a tenth of their disproportionate gender gap in job losses. So that's not very much. Now, I should caveat that with, you know, it could be that my industry categories were too broad and that actually within industries women were more likely to be doing the types of jobs that were more affected. So there is that. And did those disparities cover the gap or were there other factors? The other thing I looked into is whether there were disparities across race. And I found that it does look as though there is a nasty interaction between gender and race here. Using the latest jobs figures, participation in the labor force by white women over the age of 20 has actually fallen a little less than that of white men. But the hit to black women's participation is still 2.4 percentage points bigger than the drop among black men. So that's obviously concerning. And you worry that it, it could be that the kinds of jobs they were doing haven't come back or that they're unable to afford childcare or that they are facing one of the many barriers that American society throws up for black women, which are even worse when the economy isn't doing well. There is some survey evidence that suggests that black parents are more reluctant to send their children to in-person tuition, uh, which could be because they're more worried about getting sick. Uh, It could be because they're more worried about receiving high-quality health care in the event that they do get sick. There's a lot going on here. That's a troubling picture of disparities within America, but we've talked quite a lot on the show about the seemingly disproportionate impact the pandemic has had on men's and women's working lives in lots of countries. Is is America an outlier in that regard? You are right. It is true across a lot of the world. And the American increase in the gender gap has been unusually large. There was a policy brief from the Peterson Institute of International Economics that looks at 44 countries And it finds that there are countries, including the Netherlands and the UK, that actually had the opposite experience to the US. Their gender gap in labor force participation over the period they looked at actually shrank since the pandemic began. So where does that leave things in terms of of prescriptions, of a a way to, to get rid of these gaps? 
if you care about gender equality, you should beef up your protections for part-time workers. I think if you take the other results seriously, then a really obvious implication is that in a, in a COVID-appropriate way, opening schools, opening childcare facilities would all be good for gender equality in, in America's workforce. Samaya, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. When Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, stepped down as working members of Britain's royal family last year, there were many murmurs of the disquiet that led to their departure. They relocated to America, set up a nonprofit organization, and continued their crusade against media organizations that they say hounded them. But the revelations about what drove them from Britain were still to come. Last night on America's CBS network, the couple, now expecting their second child, had a sprawling and revealing discussion with Oprah Winfrey, one that Britons will have to wait to see tonight on the ITV network. This is a pretty startling interview. Emma Duncan is our Britain editor. There are two crucial allegations in it. One of them is that Meghan got so lonely, had so little support, that she was driven to suicidal thoughts. So were you thinking of harming yourself? Were you having suicidal thoughts? Yes. This was very, very clear. Wow. Very clear and very scary. And, you know, I didn't know who to even turn to in that. And I think the other really staggering aspect of it is that she accuses an unnamed member of the royal family of racist comments about her baby. And also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. What? And you're not going to tell me who had the conversation? I think that would be very damaging to them. We also heard claims that the royal family had misled the public about a row between Meghan and Kate. We also heard sad things about Harry's relationship with his father and how that's been damaged to the point where at one point his father stopped taking his calls. And the interview is certainly making news around the world, but to your mind, is the outcome of this a really big deal? Well, it's a massive deal in terms of a news story. I mean, I'm afraid people like watching famous people's lives pulled apart. But it is a big deal as well, because the royal family matters a huge amount to Britain. The Queen is the head of state. The royal family is a symbol of national unity, People care about it. So it matters a lot to Britain what this does to the relationship between the Queen and the people. And what do you think Meghan and Harry were were trying to achieve with this? Why do this and why do it now? I suppose two things. There is a row going on and people always want to have their side of a row put to those who are paying attention. So they were putting their side of the story And also, Oprah is the world's most famous interviewer. Meghan and Harry's future income is going to depend on their celebrity and their popularity. So presumably, there was also a fairly hard-nosed calculation about what this would do to their standing. And what about the standing of the the family more generally? How, How damaging do you think all this might be? 
I don't actually think it is going to be all that damaging. If you look at what's happened to Meghan and Harry's popularity in Britain, it's declined a lot of late. I mean, they used to be the most popular royals. A lot of Britons have turned against them for leaving the country and so are less likely to feel sympathetic towards this interview than they did, for instance, to similar interview that Princess Diana gave. But given that there are these serious allegations of racism, for example, might this prompt a, a response from the palace? No, I, I don't think there'll be a response from the palace. I mean, their mantra is never complain, never explain. There has been a preemptive response in the run-up to this interview. There was a leak of bullying complaints that were made against Meghan in 2018 by a royal aide. Um, Notable that he said in his complaint at the time, I am very concerned that nothing will be done about this. And nothing was done about it until two years later when it was evidently convenient to put out the notion that Meghan was possibly at fault in other ways herself. But aside from that, I don't think there's going to be anything in direct response to this interview. And how is this playing back at home in Britain? I mean, it's such a massive story. And the British media, which has not been particularly friendly to Meghan since the early days, has distinctly taken against her and Harry in recent months. Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain might be an example of the tone they should expect. They trash everybody. They basically make out the entire royal family a bunch of white supremacists by dropping this race bombshell they without... that phrase. They didn't, name any, they didn't name which one it was. They just throw it out there. As the dust settles, uh, I reckon there'll be plenty more of that. Well, look, al- allegations of racism and of bullying aside, what, what do you think went wrong here in the big picture? What you get in the royal family, you get massive celebrity, which presumably was quite attractive to somebody who was an actress by profession. But with that celebrity, you get a really rigid set of rules. And that's not because they are tied up in ridiculous medieval protocol. It's because of what the royal family's job is. The royal family's job is to unite Britain. And in order to do that, you have to not have any opinions, essentially not really be visibly a personality. You know, the Queen has not said anything for seven decades. Prince Charles, who used to have opinions, has stopped having opinions because he knows that they're dangerous. People start dividing over whether they like this member of the royal family or that member of the royal family. And then they cease to be a unifying factor, which is what they are supposed to be. And I think quite understandably, like any young woman, Meghan wanted to be her own person. She wanted to be known as a personality. And that simply doesn't work. And and perhaps that's what's what's going on here. That is a a very sort of sympathetic idea for an American audience and, and quite an uncomfortable one, I guess, for Brits. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that Meghan will very likely find a more sympathetic audience for this interview in America than she will in Britain. Emma, thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome.
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And see you back here tomorrow. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.